Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists recorded at the Cambridge Science Centre in front of this wonderful studio audience. This time we're looking at the science of sound. We're going to be finding out what sound is, how we make sounds, how we hear sounds, and also what we can do to reduce sounds when it's becoming a nuisance. And with us are a panel of fantastic sound-related scientists who are sound in mind, sound in body, and sound in their knowledge of sound. Rob Tolson is the director of the Digital Economy Research Institute at Anglia Ruskin University. He works on music formats and also on the future of digital music. He also has a background in acoustics, electronics and also music production. Are you a singer, Rob? Uh, I have been known to sing on occasion, yeah. In the bath or professionally? On stage sometimes, but not so much these days. Karaoke? Uh, I try to avoid that. <laughs> Richard Turner is an engineer who's at the University of Cambridge's engineering department. He works on how computers recognise sounds, and he's also developing noise-cancelling hearing aids that can distinguish background noise from speech, and that will, we hope, be able to help people to hear in very busy, noisy environments. Hello, Richard. Hello. Good to have you with us. And uh, you've got a massive ear <laughs> on the table in front of you. It's not been not my own. to the back of a mouse this time, which is a step forward. Is that, was that just in case you're hard of hearing yourself? Or? No, well, it's just to point out a few of the parts of the ear to the audience. Good stuff. And next to Richard is Nigel Peake. He's also from Cambridge University, but he's at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, where he studies the maths of noise. And he's also involved in a project that looks at why some owls can fly so quietly and he wants to rip off what the owls do and use their technology to make quieter wind turbines and possibly also aeroplanes. Yeah. How's that going to work? Oh, it's going well, to be pretty, going to pretty slow aeroplane, isn't it? it? Flapping <laughs> no, its wings no, like that. No, no, and the aeroplane won't have feathers either. <laughs> it's going to be very good. <laughs> we hope so. Next to Nigel, Nicole Francis Gaultier. Now, she was a drug scientist turned now opera singer. I was an opera singer first and then went to science and then went back to opera. So, yeah. What was the draw? So opera is better than science or just um, uh, well, didn't pay as well? Uh, <laughs> opera's got a bit more of a shelf life to it than research has, so I thought uh, one more go before that I have to retire the chords. Give us a couple of notes before we move on. Maybe later. <laughs> Please welcome our panel of esteemed guests this week. Our other two regulars, of course, in the Kitchen Science Corner. Please welcome Ginny Smith and Dave Ansell. What have you got for us, guys? We're going to be trying to listen to an oven shell and confuse your sense of direction. You've confused me already. <laughs> right, let's get started. Rob Torson, you're in the hot seat first. So you've got the hard job of actually telling us what actually is sound. So everything can vibrate. If we 
hit something or, or something um, has got some, some kind of energy attached to it, it will vibrate. And when it vibrates, it makes the air molecules around it vibrate as well. And those air molecules vibrate and they pass on, they, they knock onto each other and pass on that vibration onto the next air molecule, onto the next air molecule, until it reaches our ears and then our ears vibrate and our brain turns those signals into, into things that we know about as sound. So sound waves quite literally turn into brain waves. Essentially, yeah. I'm sure, sure Richard will tell you more about that later. Now, when we're actually listening to a sound, there are lots of different pitches of sound, aren't there? So what actually is the difference between a note which is really low, like Dave's voice, and a note that's really high, like Nicole's singing? Yeah, sure. So, um, so essentially how fast something vibrates determines the pitch. So if something vibrates very slow, we get a very low sound. But if something vibrates very fast, we get a very high sound. And, um, and so when we start to manipulate those vibrations in very specific, actually fairly mathematically related forms, we can, we can organise those sounds into things that sound nice, and that's generally can be referred to as music. But not all music sounds nice. I mean, James Blunt, for example, so something's up there, isn't it? He sells a lot of records, you know. He's a lot of deaf people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so you've brought up the subjects of music... So how does a musical instrument work then? Well, it, essentially any musical instrument is generally designed to vibrate and produce some form of sound. There are a number of different ways we can cause the air around an instrument or any object to, to vibrate. And uh, I've got some examples. I don't know if you want me to show you those now. What have you got? So, well, there's three very simple ways that we can make sound. And one of them is literally by hitting something. So if we, if we actually pass some energy on to an object, it vibrates. What I've got here in front of me is the tuning fork. And if I hit it, it vibrates. Position number three, please. <laughs> when it vibrates, it essentially, this tuning fork is the right dimensions, the right material, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's got the right... right amount of material to vibrate at a very specific frequency. So every time I hit it, it always sounds the same. And that's, a, that's because of the mass of the material. It, it's moving a certain amount of mass backwards and forwards. Exactly. Right? And if it were heavier, it would move slower. If it was a different material, it might move faster. Some instruments are made of metal, some instruments are made of wood, and some instruments are made of plastics. And they all give slightly different sounds. And if I stuck a, a bit of blue tack or something onto there to, to damp it to, or make well, it I've, heavier... I've got that, exactly. Oh, OK. So, so um, but it's not blue tack. you've got... No, that. I've got a little weight here. So okay. this is it without the weight. And if I put a weight on it... And that's with the weight. Now... Just before I move on, I want to show you the two at the same time, because at the moment this is, that was one very sp specific signal. But if I actually play them both at the same time, now the air molecules will be all, all vibrating at different rates, and they will interfere with each other. So instead of getting a pure sine wave, we will get uh, something that's got more interference. Hopefully you'll be able to hear this. Yes, there's almost like a series of peaks and troughs, isn't there? It's a bit louder, a bit quieter. Can we just hear that again one more time? It's almost like jarring, like a car... When a car goes past your house and the windows vibrate a bit, it's almost doing that. Yeah, it's called a beating, actually. And what's happening is, is the, um, the frequencies are very close, but they're not quite the same, and they come 
into time with each other and then out of time with each other. And as they do, they get louder and quieter. So actually, what we, we can't really hear two sounds. We can only hear one, but we hear it warbling. If, you just want, if I just change the weight, you'll hear it warbling at a just slightly different rate. That's really spooky. It's going back, <laughs> it's, it's going round in my head. So now that's changed, that's changed the, the difference in frequency. So they're now going slowly in and out. It's called modulation. They're slowly going in and out of time. I, I work a lot in music studios and recording studios, and this can make a real big difference to how well a, a band or a music ensemble sound because if they're slightly out of tune from each other we get all these kind of interfering sounds so that's why some of the best orchestras in the world sound so good and that little bit better than all the others is because their instruments are tuned and their ears are better and they can perform purely in harmony you've got some other instruments here have you got some some other bits and pieces uh, that you could do with us the other things we've got is strings so this was hitting a, a piece of metal an object uh, but strings vibrate as well. So this is a small ukulele. When I pluck the string, it vibrates. And there's different strings which vibrate. And the reason they vibrate differently is because some are tighter than others and some have got different thicknesses than others. So depending on the thickness of the string and also by putting my finger on the, uh, on the instrument here, I can effectively make the string shorter. So length mass and tension all determine the sound and the other thing is we can play lots of different sounds at the same time and if if i play something where they're in harmony with each other it sounds good and if i play something random they don't sound so good so um so there are all these musical rules which give us an idea of when we might make certain sounds and when we might make others what about because that's, that's the strings section, if we think of our orchestra. What about the woodwind or wind instruments? What about, how do they make sound? OK, so we can make sound directly without actually hitting anything or plucking anything. We can actually vibrate the air directly by creating some kind of wind power, and that's obviously the types of instruments are woodwind instruments. What I've got here is a pipe out of a church organ. An old church organ blows wind down certain pipes, and pipes of different diameters and different lengths all make different sounds. So if I blow into this one, it just makes a noise, and that's purely because of its size. A different size pipe makes a different noise. And if you go into a church, you'll see all different sizes of, of pipes in the church. What actually happens is this, this mouth here in the pipe, this that's, slot... That's the little slot you've got about, I don't know... 20 yeah. centimetres along yeah, the tube? essentially it causes what we call turbulence in the air, which mixes all the air up really randomly. And then because this pipe is such a straight and, and round structure, the air all falls into some kind of organisation and gives us a um, oh, right. so pure tone. The, the air is blown in, that's the energy coming in, but yep. it's the turbulence created by that little slot yep. that then creates the vibrations that go up and down the pipe and... They, they become maximum or, or minimum they fall into according their, to how long the tube is. They fall into their, the frequency they want to vibrate in. So, but uh, there's another interesting thing with this, which if I blow it gently, it makes one noise. But if I excite that air lots and I blow it harder, it makes a completely different noise. And that's because there's more energy at higher frequencies and then it falls into a different order. Any questions for Rob? I'm Ben and I'm from Barrington. Is that why when you get like a whistle and you put your hand over the small 
tube and you put the hand over all of them, it sounds really strange. Yeah, that's because uh, when, you, when you put your fingers over, over everything, that makes it go to its highest possible frequency, and that's really quite piercing. But yeah, that's exactly how recorders and woodwind instruments work. By putting our fingers on the holes, we effectively are changing the, the mechanical sort of properties of that instrument. Thank you very much, Rob. Ginny. So, Rob, you also brought along another little demo for us. You said you were going to change our voices. How are you going to do that? Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do is show you some sound effects, which basically are taking some sound, i.e. a voice, and manipulating it, doing some clever mathematical processing, which is all built into the computer, and that's some of the things I research these days, are how we can manipulate sound and change sound. So let me just switch my speaker on. This This is an example example of of just just clear clear voice, voice, no no effect. And this is the same thing thing with low reverb, reverb, which makes it sound like it's in a cave or in a really big church. Something else I can do is add delay. Hello, 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 hello. Is there anyone there? Is there anyone there? Is there anyone there? Or I can add the two together. And it sounds really spooky. Anyone else want to have a go at changing their voice? <laughs> I thought that might be a yes. What's your name? Where are you from? Uh, I'm called Rowan and I'm from Cottenham. Okay, Rowan, now. So, what are you going to say, Rowan? Don't know, really. Okay, here you go. Hi. What's your name? Rowan. Uh, and what's your favourite lesson? Probably so what have you done to Rowan's voice there? So we've just added a process effect which takes his voice and it makes it much higher pitch and it adds extra uh, harmonics and it modulates them so they come in and out and, and a bit of distortion and it sounds like a robot alien type sound. Made you sound very silly, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> What's your name? Ben and I'm from Barrington. Okay, Ben, what are we going to do to Ben's voice? Hello? Oh, come on. <laughs> you been doing today, Ben? I've been at school. It's just unfair. <laughs> well, that's a very similar thing, except instead of going up in pitch, it's going down, and that's the kind of sound effect that's used if you want to disguise your voice. So, and computers are so fast now that you can do it in what's called real time, which is essentially as you're talking. Ladies and gentlemen, from Anglia Ruskin University, Rob Toulson. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and we're down at the Cambridge Science Centre. We're exploring the science of sound, and now we're going to talk about how the thing works that actually enables us to experience sound in the first place. Richard Turner is an engineer at the University of Cambridge where he works on the physiology of hearing, effectively working out how we can fix it when it goes wrong. Hello, Richard. Good to have you with us. How do do our ears work? Okay, so I'm going to tell you about the three stages that sounds pass through to go from sound waves to to brain waves. The first step happens here with the outer ear. This collects sounds and shapes them a little bit and passes it on to the second stage. This is the bit you can see sticking out from the side of the head. Indeed, yeah, these are your pinna, as the technical term is, on the outer side of your head. And they collect sounds and pass them on to the, what's called the middle ear, which contains three of the smallest bones in the human body. So these bones are roughly about half a centimetre in size, and they act to focus the sounds onto a very small area 
called the oval window, and they make the vibrations of that window much greater than they would have been if the bones, if the bones weren't there. When people talk about the eardrum, mm-hmm. where's that? What does that do? So the eardrum is where these bones collect the sound from, and then they move it from the eardrum or the tympanic membrane to the oval window at the end. So the pinna therefore collects the sound, funnels it into the bit you can stick your finger in and wiggle it. Yep. And at the end of that's the eardrum. Yep, that's, that's going to vibrate. That's going to vibrate. The sound waves, the vibrations hit it. Yep, and that's then where the bones the, pick it up. Then the bones pick it up, amplify it a little bit along the way, and then wiggle around the oval window at the end of that process. And if we look inside the oval window, it sounds like one of these old children's telly from my youth. If we go through the oval window, what's in there? Ah, and this is where the, the third stage is, then the really interesting stuff happens. So in there is a fluid-filled space and the oval window is wiggling backwards and forwards in time with the sound coming in, and that moves the fluid around. And sitting in the fluid is a very clever membrane called the basilar membrane. And the membrane at one end is very, very thick and stiff, and at the other end is very thin and pliant. And if high-frequency sounds come in, if we take one of Rob's tuning forks with a high-pitched tone, that will wiggle around the thick end of the basilar membrane that's very stiff and it won't wriggle around the pliant end very much at all. But if we take a tuning fork with a low frequency, then that will excite the pliant wiggly end and won't uh, move the stiff end at all. So the basilar membrane breaks out the frequency content of sounds. When I'm listening to you speaking, there's a whole range of different notes and frequencies mixed in and I experience those as your voice. But you're saying that my inner ear, my cochlear this basilar membrane because it has different parts of it that vibrate more or less with different sound frequencies different parts will therefore respond to different sounds what happens when it responds and vibrates what does it do next so now we've got mechanical motion how do we turn that into into brain waves now sitting next to the basilar membrane are a line of very special cells called hair cells they're called hair cells because they have little protrusions coming out of them and don't the, tell me i bet they're called hairs <laughs> they are called they are called hairs indeed and as the basilar membrane moves it displaces these hairs that come out of these cells and that's what transduces this mechanical vibration of the basilar membrane into electrical signals inside the brain so we get signals out in response to what the different frequency components are in a sound at any particular time. And effectively we're going to see different parts of this basilar membrane shaking more or less in response to different sounds. Yeah, you can... and, and the nerve cells, the hair cells, are picking that up and turning it into electrical signals. Yeah, that's right. You can think of it as a bit like a piano in reverse. So we play a piano and we, we move the strings and that produces sound waves. In the brain... Um, when a sound of a particular frequency comes in, it will excite the basilar membrane, which is the string, and cause a particular key to move. So it's sort of like a piano in reverse carrying out an analysis of the incoming sound. And when someone goes deaf, what's gone wrong with the system? There are a number of things that can go wrong and cause hearing loss. One common one, which affects lots of people, is that the hair cells get damaged. So, for instance, if you go to lots of rock concerts and listen to very, very loud music, that can cause what's called noise-induced hearing loss. You can have diseases which affect the hair cells. And perhaps the most common form of hearing loss is as you get older, these hair cells tend to perform less well. And in particular, that happens at the high-frequency end. So as people tend to get older, they find it harder and harder to hear high-frequency sounds. Do you quite literally get deafened by the sound of your own voice? 
There are mechanisms that stop you get deafened by your own voice. So this middle well, ear... Well, I can just see Nicole, Nick, she, you know, our opera singing colleagues, nodding her head, because you have to sing pretty loud. I mean... <laughs> well, my, my partner says he's going deaf just by living with me in proximity. <laughs> but sorry, Richard, you're going to say, so why don't I deafen myself, quite literally, when I'm shouting at a rugby match or something? When um, you speak very loudly, you engage muscles which connect to the three bones in the middle ear, which stops them moving around so much. So then the transduction from the eardrum to the oval window is less strong, and the vibrations caused in the cochlear are less strong too. When someone does become hard of hearing and they need some help, what sorts of help can we give people? At the moment, current hearing aids work in the following way. If you lose your hair cells, they respond less vigorously to the incoming sound. And so a sort of a simple way of compensating for that is to make the sounds much louder. And you do that in a frequency-specific way. So if you can't hear high frequencies, we boost the high-frequency volume of the incoming sounds. And that's what a current hearing aid When you see someone does. with that little thing behind their ear and a little pipe going into their ear, what's that actually doing then? Is that pipe carrying the amplified sound just into their ear canal. That's right, and passing it onto the system, which then, then processes the sound in, in the normal way. If someone finds that's not terribly useful, is there anything even better that you can offer, or is there anything else we can do? Yeah, so that's something that we're working on. So one of the things which people with hearing loss find very difficult and challenging is noisy environments when there's lots of background, often environmental noise going on. And we've become sort of very interested in studying the properties of those environmental noises and developing methods to automatically remove them from speech and music sounds that you might be perhaps more interested in. So if we were down the pub having a conversation, I, with normal hearing, find it relatively easy to zone out all that other noise that's going on around us and focus on what you're saying to me. A person's hearing aid wouldn't have that ability so therefore it would just amplify everything and they're going to get really deafened, quite literally, by all this onslaught of noise because it's indiscriminate. Is that's, that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the amplification applies to everything. It's not just the signals that you're interested in, like the speech or the music. It's also going to amplify all the background noise. And the question is, can you build intelligent devices that only amplify the signals of interest and maybe suppress the background noise a bit so they're not so audible? Can yeah. you do that? No, so this is technology definitely for the future. But we've got some interesting demonstrations of sort of a proof of concept of what we can do in this area. So we're going to listen to a short clip of some environmental sounds. And these are the sorts of sounds which people with hearing impairment find very distracting if they're played in conjunction with speech sounds. They find it very difficult to hear. OK, so in, in the clip I start by a campfire... And then you can hear my footsteps as I walk along. And I walk past a little stream you can hear in the background here. And then the wind gets up. And then it starts to rain. So I unzip my tent. And here you can hear the raindrops just coming in. And I get into my tent just in time. Yeah, I think I went on that holiday as well. <laughs> What's perhaps surprising about the sounds that I just played to you is that each one is entirely synthetic. So they were produced by taking a statistical model, training that on a short clip of sounds, and then the model, because it's learned the statistics of those noises, is able to produce synthetic versions of arbitrary length, which look very different from the original, but sound just the same. So Those are not real sounds. A computer has churned those out based on having learned what those should sound like. That's right. So it's, it's learned 
things like the statistics of falling raindrops in the raindrop example and what the raindrops sound like individually and how quickly they arrive. And then they're able to synthesize new rain sounds automatically, which a listener cannot tell the difference of. Can I guess then that where you're going with this is if you can pretend what a sound sounds like, you can therefore digitally subtract. You can take that signal away from the sound coming into, say, a hearing aid, leaving behind what the sound would be like without that. Absolutely. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. So the analogy here I often use is of a spam filter. An email spam filter can detect your emails and ones that should be arriving to you versus spam. And the way it does it is it calculates the statistics of spam and the statistics of your emails based on word frequencies. And based on those differing statistics, it can figure out what's spam and what's a real bona fide email. And so we're trying to do the same thing uh, with audio signals where the spam is the environmental noise and the signal that you want is uh, speech or music. And if someone needs a more radical intervention, what's the difference between what you've been describing and, say, a cochlear implant? What's one of those and how does that work? So a cochlear implant is surgically implanted into patients who are almost completely deaf. So they often have no functioning hair cells at all. And so we need to cut the hair cells out the loop. Amplifying the sound just isn't going to work because uh, there's nothing there to pick up the sound anyway. And so what you do is you implant an array of electrodes inside the cochlea that then interface directly with the auditory nerve fibres and bypass the hair cells completely. If I therefore send little electrical signals down those electrodes, they will directly activate the nervous system, fooling it into thinking it's heard a vibration, a sound wave at that frequency. That's right. And then those signals go into the brain, and the brain thinks, ah, there must be a sound there, but it's actually an electrical signal. Yeah, that's right. So you have a microphone outside on the side of your head, which then communicates by a radio sensor to the implant inside the, uh, the patient's head. Who's got some questions for Richard? Ben, and I'm from Barrington. How long are the hairs? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know precisely, but they're extremely small. We're talking about micrometers, perhaps even smaller than that. Micrometers yeah. being a millionth, a millionth of a metre. Exactly. Tiny, then, yeah. tiny. Yes. Hi, my name is Ailish, and I'm from Cambridge. I don't know if this is your area or not, if there was any stem cell research and growing those hair cells. Yeah, there, there is. Again, it's totally not my area at all, but um, I think there has been recent success in actually starting hair cell regrowth so before i think people really struggled and didn't couldn't find a treatment that would cause hair cells to regrow but i think there's been a, a recent breakthrough in that regard i'm norman from barrington as well thinking about bats how does a bat's ear differ from a human ear because they can hear very different sorts of frequencies can't they uh, they can. So I know almost nothing about bats. One thing I do know is, is that a bat would deafen itself if it didn't protect itself against its echolocating sound because it's going to try and output an extremely high amplitude sound, which if it had its ears turned on at that point would, would deafen it. Bats are officially louder than the Who. The Who are the <laughs> loudest rock band in history and bats squeak at more than 120 to 130 dB. And the Who, I think, got 110 at one of their concerts. Um, so, the, so the bat has a mechanism very much like the mechanism I talked about for the middle ear, where it turns down the gain on its auditory system to protect itself against uh, deafening itself with its echolocation. Ginny? We've got a question that's come in on Twitter. In response to your thing about the bones tightening so that you don't deafen yourself, Charlotte Hill says, does this explain why sometimes when people talk loudly, they don't realise how loud they are? 
It could well do, yeah. So there's a number of things that are going on there because you also hear yourself through bone conduction as well, which is what makes it hard for singers sometimes to figure out what pitch they're singing at and exactly how loud they're trying to sing as well. And that's why the first few times you hear yourself back on the radio, you think, oh my goodness, do I really sound like that? Indeed, you sound very, very different to how you expect to sound. And that's because you're listening via your sound conducted by the bones in your head rather than um, through the pathway I've been talking about. I'm Anthony from Cambridge. Why are some people tone deaf? I don't think that that's anything to do with the early auditory processing pathway I've talked about. There is a lot we don't know about how perception of sounds and the neurobiology underlying that perception works. And I think tone deafness is something which happens much further up the pathway. And so the answer is, I'm afraid, that we just don't know. Uh, Nicole? Um, it's, it's true what uh, Richard's saying about the neurobiology, and we don't, in fact, know, uh, and there's some theories that it's possibly genetic and that it develops, as you say, further down the line. There is a slight difference between tone deafness, though, and someone who just sings off pitch. It could also possibly be a technique in that you don't actually know how to sing. So even though you, you can hear the pitch in your mind and you think you're getting it correctly, you might not be supporting the voice, you might not be opening uh, the back of the throat enough, you might not be dropping the tongue. There's a whole uh, load of technique around the embouchure and the support that you need to make a sound. So if someone who has a nice voice and they can hear the pitches, uh, but they're slightly under the pitch, what we we would call flat, so your tone is flat, that could possibly be your ear is right, but your technique is off. So that can be fixed. Tone deafness can't. I have had a tone deaf student and uh, it broke my brain a little bit. As well Um, as your hearing. Thank you. (laughs) Dave, you've uh, got an oven shelf in your hand. What are, what are you pair planning now? <laughs> so this actually links in really nicely from what we've just been talking about, bone conductance. What are we going to do, Dave? So first of all, we need a volunteer from the audience. What's your name? Uh, I'm Boris and I'm from Hungary. So what are we going to ask Boris to do? I've basically got an oven shelf here hanging by a piece of string. It's a bit of a weird thing to be carrying around with you. These things happen, you know. And it's one of the kind of oven shelves, it's like an open grill type thing that you'd then put your tray of potatoes on top of in the oven. That's right, so it's just a metal grill, and I can hit that with a piece of metal. Makes vaguely pleasant noise, what do you think? Uh, yeah. It's not particularly exciting, though. It's pretty dull, it's quite tinny, quite high-pitched. Now what I want you to do, Boris, is wrap the piece of string that's hanging on around a finger and then stick that finger onto the kind of fleshy flap of skin which goes over your ear. Okay, so you're going to have an oven shelf on a piece of string dangling from your ear. We promise you this is for science. It's not just to make you look silly. So if you lean forward so the oven shelf isn't touching anything, and now I'm going to hit the oven shelf. Did it sound the same or did it sound different? Uh, No, it sounds a lot lower. A lot lower pitch. Yep. Anything else that was different? Uh, It was a little louder. It's got louder and lower pitch. Now, it sounded exactly the same to me, but Boris has got his finger in his ear with a piece of string, and it sounds different to him. It's a bit rubbish that only Boris can hear this, so we're going to try and get it so everyone can hear this now. Okay, so now we're going to replace Boris's ear with a microphone, and that hopefully means that everyone here and everyone at home will be able to get the same effect that Boris was getting. Dave is now constructing another piece of string to tie the oven shelf onto the microphone. And he's holding the microphone from a piece of string. So the microphone's dangling, and then below that, the oven shelf is dangling. Should we hear it one more time, what it sounds like normally? Okay, and now if we let it go, 
So now you'll be able to hear the sound which is coming up the string as well as the sound which is coming through the air. Mm. Everyone hear that? What's going on there, Dave? Why does it sound so different when the string is attached to the microphone or your ear? First of all, um, if I just hit this normally, and if you feel it now. Oh, it's vibrating. It kind of tickles my fingers. So it's always vibrating at both the high pitches, which you can hear normally, and also those low pitches. But the things with low pitches, they can't efficiently get into the air. It's a bit like um, if you try and make waves with a finger in water. If you move your finger very, very fast... The water hasn't got time to get out of the way and you make waves. If you move your finger really slowly, the water's got plenty of time to get round it and so you don't make very big waves. You just end up sort of moving your finger through the water. It's like the water doesn't come with you. That's right. So the oven shelf is vibrating very, very fast. That can make waves in the air, sound waves, and you can hear it. And those fast ones, the high pitch is the kind of tinny sound. That's right. But the low pitches can't get into the air, so they can't get into your ears. But if you've got a stiff piece of string, if one end of the piece of string moves, then the other end of the piece of string is going to move. And then that sound goes straight up the string, in through the bones, and goes straight to your ear. And so you can hear the low pitches as well as the high pitches. And that's why it sounds really different when it's connected either to your ear or, I guess, the same happens with the microphone. The vibrations travel up the string to the microphone, and you can pick those up directly. That's right, and that's another reason why, if you've ever seen old Western films, you see people putting their ears to the track, because any low-frequency low sounds which will go down a track much more effectively and will travel a lot further can't get out of the, the track very well, but if you put your ear on it, they'll go straight in through the bones, into your ears, and you'll hear them really well, and you'll know where that train's going to come so you can ambush it. You have to make sure you look which way the train's coming from, though, Dave, because if the train's coming from the other way, you could get nasty. (laughs) Ginny Smith and Dave Ansell in our Kitchen Science Corner. Thank you. (laughs) You're listening to The Naked Scientist, and in this special edition, we are looking at the science of sound. And next, we're actually going to turn our eyes skyward and learn how nature solves the problem of sound and how we might be able to steal it. Nigel, peek is Hello. from the Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics. Tell us a bit about this. How, does it, how do you do what you do? I'm a mathematician, and I'm interested in trying to predict how much noise is produced by things like aircraft and wind turbines, because if you can predict that, then maybe you can design them to make them quieter. Um, but what I want to talk about tonight is something a little bit different, um, and that's about owls. And it's been known probably for centuries that there were some owls that can fly amazingly quietly. So these are big owls like barn owls or great grey owls. And the question is, how do they manage to do that? Because if you can understand that, then maybe we can do something about aircraft and wind turbines. We heard from Rob at the beginning what sound actually is. It's vibrations in the Mm. air. But how does the sound vibrations that come from something we do like the sound of or something that's not really very disturbing differ from something which is very distracting or disturbing, like an aeroplane? What's going on that's different? Okay, well, one of the things is that aircraft noise, annoying noise, has got a very, very broad range of frequencies. Um, And so things aren't in tune. It's producing sound at a whole range of frequencies. And that's often because the flow is very turbulent. The flow is very complicated. And that means that it produces frequencies all over the place. Can you show us that? I certainly can. So what I have here, a very simple thing, is a a canister of compressed air that you have to clean your computer keyboard. And it's got a, a very thin sort of long pipe on the end. And now if I squeeze this, 
and you can hear there's a hissing noise. Most of that noise is quite complicated what's going on, but most of that noise is coming from the turbulent flow that's coming out of the pipe. This jet is quite low speed, so it's not particularly noisy. But you can imagine if you've got your aircraft taking off from Heathrow, the jet is far, far faster. Maybe it's going at close to the speed of sound, 330 metres a second, something like that. And that is really, really noisy. Now, if I do something else, if I have a... I've got here a ruler, which has got a sharp edge, and I've got this quiet jet, and now I, put, I move the sharp edge into the jet, then what you hear is I get a louder noise. And what's going on there is that although the turbulence by itself isn't very good at producing noise, as soon as you put a, a sharp edge into it, the sharp edge is very good at then converting the turbulence into the very fast sound waves. We heard the noise get to a maximum yes. when that ruler edge that you were using was directly in line with the air yes. coming out of the pipe. That's right. Uh, and this is important. Now, when your aircraft is coming in to land, the engines aren't very noisy. But what is very noisy are the um, what are called the air brakes, which are, are deployed to try and slow the aircraft down, the trailing edge of the wing. And it's exactly this effect with the ruler. There's turbulence flowing over the trailing edge, and that's amplifying the turbulence, uh, producing a lot of noise. That is, at the end of the day, why the aeroplane's slowing down, though, isn't it? Because it's shedding energy. Yes. It's disturbing lots of air, yes. which is helping it to slow down. But the downside is that it's making lots of noise. It's making lots of noise, which, of course, is very bad for the people who live near the airport. Another thing is that if you have a wind turbine that's rotating, then there's a noise source there, which is, again, to do with the air flowing over the, the sharp trailing edge of the turbine blade. But if you stop the wings making that turbulence on an aeroplane, for example, mm. won't it have a problem slowing down? You can't help the turbulence, and in many ways that's important because that actually helps the pilots to manoeuvre the aircraft safely. But what you need to do is to find a way of stopping the turbulence interacting with this sharp edge in such a noisy way, and we believe that's what the owl has done. So what do owls do then? OK, well, owls have got two very unusual features about their wings. So the first thing is if you look at the trailing edge, then it's got a very flexible brush, a small comb. And then the second thing is then the feathers of these owls are much, much more complicated than the feathers of any other bird. And in fact, they're much more complicated than the feathers of other owls that don't need to fly silently. And it's because owls need to fly silently to give them the best chance of catching yeah. something, that there's they've two, evolved to, to have this particular adaptation. Exactly, there's two reasons. One is if you're hunting a mouse, then the mice have rather good hearing, so you don't want them to hear you coming. And the other thing is that if you're trying to hear the mouse, you don't want to be making so much noise yourself. The, the cost must be to the owl that it's harder to fly, though, because it's not got the same aerodynamics... As, as an animal that doesn't damp its sound down like this? Actually, sound is very low energy. Even very loud sounds are quite low in, in energy costs. So, for instance, if you had the whole of Wembley Stadium shouting throughout a, a match, then the total acoustic energy that would be produced is only about enough to fry one egg. Uh, and that's because the sound waves are actually very small amplitude, and this proves how remarkable the ear is uh, detecting these very small amplitudes. Actually. And you're trying to copy what the owls do. Yes. So you've worked out what the owls yeah. do, now you're saying, can we copy that? Exactly. Onto an aeroplane's wing 
yes. to make it quieter. Yes, and, we ha- and we've managed to do this. So we did some mathematics, we did some computing, and we designed something which we thought would mimic what the owl does. Now, it doesn't involve sticking a feather on a wing. Because it's a very fluffy aeroplane. It would just look silly, wouldn't it? But we've got this device which we've designed, and we've put it in a wind tunnel, and we've tried it, and it works. So we're really excited about that. And the next thing is that we're actually going to put it on a proper wind turbine in a field somewhere and see what happens. So that's the next stage. Because wind turbines make sounds for exactly the same reasons that aeroplanes do. So what works for one will work for another. Yes, and if it works on a wind turbine, then maybe, just maybe, it'll work on an aircraft as well. How much disturbance or sound do you think you can save? How much of a knockdown effect will this achieve? Well, in the wind tunnel, it went from being quite loud to being almost inaudible. So the sound is measured in decibels, um, and this was 10 decibels, which is an absolutely massive change. Any questions? My name is Ben, and I'm from Barrington. What happens if you put the blunt end to the air can instead of the sharp end? So what, you remember what I said about the aircraft coming into land? There's actually another source of noise, which is when you put the landing gear down, and that's like a blunt edge, and you'll anybody who's been on an aircraft coming into land, when the gear goes down, that's very noisy as well. So as well as doing something about the sharp end of the ruler, doing something with the bluff end is very important as well because that would, that would um, solve this problem about the landing gear. There was a question that could really be put to any of you or all of you. Garage, is it on Twitter, it given is, we're talking about birds? <laughs> it is on Twitter. Garage Idol asks, is there a minimum or maximum limit to frequency or amplitude of sound? Who wants to come in on that? Uh, Well, I'll have a go. Um, So it's to do with hearing, of course. So young people's ears are much better than old people's, as we we heard. But a young person can hear a sound of zero decibels. That's the sort of threshold of of, of hearing. And then there's a a sort of maximum threshold where it starts to cause damage to the, the ear because the sound is so loud, which is about 140 decibels like that and then you can get much bigger pressures so there are some very loud sounds like volcanoes erupting which can get up towards maybe 190 decibels and 190 decibels is actually one atmosphere of pressure which is how much pressure is pressing down on us because of all the air going up into space ladies and gentlemen from the department of applied maths and theoretical physics at cambridge university nigel pig Now, this does look very exciting. Dave and Ginny, two large funnels and a set of headphones by the look of it. What are you up to now? Well, we've been talking about owls and how good some of them are at flying quietly, but there's another thing that owls are really, really good at that helps them with hunting, and that's pinpointing where a sound is coming from. Humans are okay at it, but owls are brilliant, so when they're flying, they can work out if that little mouse they can hear is over to the left or over to the right, and they can swoop down and get it. We don't have any owls here, unfortunately. We're stuck with humans. So we're going to have a bit of a play with how you work out where a sound's coming from. So what I've got here is a set of uh, ear defenders. And attached to it, I've got two tubes. One from the right-hand ear, which goes to a funnel on the left-hand side. And one from the left-hand ear, which goes to a funnel on the right-hand side. And now what we need is a volunteer. What's your name? Stanley. Where are you from, Stanley? Trumpeton. Brilliant. Okay, now Stanley, we are going to put this fantastic thing on your head. So Stanley has a pair of big yellow ear defenders on now, 
And from his left ear, there is a tube going up and over his head and a big funnel pointing out to his right. And from his right ear, there's another tube going up over his head and with a big funnel pointing to his left. So now, Stanley, I want you to shut your eyes. And what I want you to do is point to the direction which it sounds like I'm coming from. (laughs) Stanley has pointed to me and I'm standing on his left. Dave, meanwhile, is standing on his right. Where does it sound like I'm coming from? So it sounds like I'm coming from where Dave is. And I'm coming from where Ginny is. (laughs) It's like opposites. (laughs) I think it's, yes, it's like, sounds like he's on that. (laughs) Is that very confusing? Yeah. (laughs) So why have we done this to Stanley? So what we've done is effectively swapped the position of his two ears. Actually, where the sound is coming into his left ear is actually on, the right, on his right-hand side now because of the tube, and where the sound is coming into his right ear is actually now on the left-hand side. So when I talk and I'm on his left, the sound goes into the funnel, around the tube, and into his right ear. So it sounds like I'm over there on your right, yeah? Yes. You've got a couple of ways of working out what direction things are coming from. Um, one of them is which ear it sounds the loudest in, and the other more subtle one is which ear the sound gets to first. Um, and that's the reason why sometimes it's very, very hard to tell whether something's in front of you or behind you. Because if something's dead in front of you or dead behind you, it gets to both ears at the same time. So I'm standing here with nothing on my head, and I can tell that you're on my right, because your voice gets to my right ear first, and you sound louder in my right ear. And we've changed that for Stanley here, and that's why he's very confused. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much, Dave Ansell and Ginny Smith. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. We're down at the Cambridge Science Centre, and this week we're looking at the science of sound and hearing. And up next is Nicole Francis Gaultier, who started off as a singer. She then became a scientist, and then she decided... I've become a singer again. So you're an opera singer, a I'm professional op- opera singer? Professional opera singer, um, but I would actually say that I'm doing as much or if not more science now that I'm singing, even though I'm not in a lab. And it's interesting listening to my colleagues on the panel because almost everything they've talked about can be applied to the human voice. And that's why I'm going to go on the record saying I think that singing is the coolest science ever because you've got physics, physiology, neurology, neurobiology, biochemistry, it's, it's pretty exciting. So it's kind of all-encompassing. And I think having become a scientist has made me a more well-rounded singer. Now, that's not a, a qualitative thing because we have a subjective uh, ear in terms of listening. So. It's not quantitative either because you're a normal show. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a really interesting question. Because the stereotypical opera singer is quite, you know, Pavarotti was Pavarotti. I that's mean, right. It? And there's the very famous saying, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. And that, of course, means something's not over till it's over, but it was referencing one of Wagner's operas uh, where Brunhilde sings at the very end of the ring cycle. But fat actually is not uh, an important aspect of a good voice or a functional voice. In fact, it doesn't matter what size you are. You can be fat and, and sing well. You can be thin and sing well. The technique and how you use the muscles involved is much more important. And also the bone structure that you were born with, your natural acoustics, is going to apply much more than how much adipose tissue you have on you. Breaking it down then, mm-hmm. there are lots of different aspects to it. There's so there's many. Actually, how you 
physically control the breath coming out. There's how you actually amplify the sound That's in right. your mouth and then control the shape of that sound mm-hmm. and so on. Do you want to just talk us through, when, when sure. you're singing, what's actually going through your mind? What are you concentrating well, <laughs> on doing, apart from getting the notes At right, the end obviously. of the day, when, when we're performing, nothing should be going through your mind, and that's why opera is extremely tricky. It's a kind of vocal version of patting your head and rubbing your stomach because you are doing so many different coordinated things that actually oppose each other because you're going against your natural physiology. Um, And one of the sort of aha moments I had was because I went back to opera after a long break, I decided to retrain. And my teacher was going over breath control with me. And when we talk about breath control as singers, what we're really talking about is the controlling of the exhalation and the speed at which we let the air leave the body. And so she was explaining this. And of course, we want the most amount of space in the thoracic cavity, so in the torso. And we want to have the muscles very flexible. And all of a sudden, I shouted, oh, my God. Boyle's law. And that's exactly what singers are doing. You're, you're an applied physicist. And so when you have an extreme amount of volume in terms of being filled with air, you are resisting the external pressure of collapsing. And so the first thing you think about is, am I resisting that exhalation? Because what you don't want is air in the sound. What you have with the vocal cords is you have uh, very much like um, Rob showed his ukulele. We have the vocal cords that are a bit like strings. And so a uh, shape of the vocal cord will affect what kind of voice you have, the timbre of the voice, etc. And so you want to think about letting the air through, but not letting the air upset the vibration of the vocal cord. So it's a very fine balance of how much air pressure you let out as you sing. Are you aiming for a sort of constant supply of air? Yes. On... And it's it's that that you're superimposing the opening and closing of the vocal cords that gives the vibrations that are the sound. Absolutely. And you can change the vibrato by how fast you push the air through. So one of the things you want to do as as an opera singer is actually uh, make sure that it's very slow and very even so you don't have big peaks and valleys in the voice that you have a nice even tone throughout. And so you're not making a breathy sound. Whereas if you were doing something maybe sort of, you know, jazz or torch songy, you'd, you'd want a breathier. How do you learn that? Is that someone sort of listening to you and going... Oh, Nicole, you need to just do this a bit more. Yes, you do need external ears for sure. One of the things you're trained as an opera singer to do is rely more on sensation in the body than listening to yourself because you can actually mislead yourself terribly. And let's say you were singing at a house like uh, Houston Grand Opera, which I believe is 5,000 seats, so quite huge. And let's say you're singing Wagner over maybe 87 to 100 instruments. You've got to have a lot of power. And what will happen in that situation is because of that room and because of the instruments, there is a possible delay for the singer. And one of the reasons we actually need conductors, and every one of my colleagues is going to shoot me for this, saying yes, we do need conductors, I'm sorry, is so they keep the tempo for you, because if you rely on what you hear, you may actually be behind the music because of the echo that's coming back at you. So when you first learn, you need a trusted ear, and you need someone that knows the physiology and knows what they're listening for to help you recreate that sound and to get you to to rely on what you feel rather than what you hear. Following the sound on its journey to Mm -hmm. the outside world. So we've come (laughs) airflow, we've got vocal cords which are opening and closing at a certain rate. That creates the the vibrations or puffs of air that are the sound. Those vibrations come into your throat, pharynx, mouth, and the shape of that is acting as a sort of resonant cavity, isn't it? And it amplifies certain sounds. So tell us about how that works a bit. 
one of the things you do when you sing is you, with in terms of operatic technique, is you try to make sure that the head is as hollow as possible. And there are terrible That's jokes. That's easy in some people's Yes, cases. exactly. The terrible joke is that, that, you know, tenors are so resonant because there's not much up here. But, you know, that's that's not entirely true, I have to say. As someone who's done neurobiology, that's not correct. But what you do want to do is make sure that uh, there's nothing in the way of the resonance so that you can use the entire uh, head cavity in order to make sound. And you will notice that singers that have quite large voices have quite large heads. And very often they have a large area, a very large jaw. Joan Sutherland is a fantastic example, Australian soprano, uh, who's uh, no longer with us. But she had a phenomenal jaw that just looked like it detached itself. And so the more space you're able to make in your head, the more resonance you will get. So when people say Mick Jagger, you know, stereotypical, like, big mouth Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah. That's really true. I would say he goes a little bit too wide. Opera singers actually (laughs) go for a bit more height because one of the things that happens muscularly is the soft palate is actually muscularly related to the back of the tongue. And so when the tongue goes down, part of the soft palate lifts up. And so what you want is to create that maximum space. So Jagger goes a wee bit wide, and that's great for the type of music he sings because we want a tone that spins, as we say, a sort of resonance that just keeps ringing and ringing we go for a taller sound if that's and what distinguishes or or what's the difference between when you make a quiet sound and when you want to sing really loud how do you what are you doing to make more volume well what's interesting is it's we we talk about it in terms of energy and it's it's a combination of breath pressure and and sort of muscular it's a tension but a relaxation it's a very strange sensation and again you're playing very finely with the breath pressure you're you're putting through the apparatus. Now, someone said to me that the best you'll ever hope for when you present radio programs is to learn to tolerate the sound of your own voice. Do you yes. like the sound of your voice? I do, yes. <laughs> I, I feel really narcissistic saying that. <laughs> I've had to listen to myself a lot because of retraining, and my voice has actually changed tremendously because I discovered I could do different things with it. And so it's been quite exciting. So, yeah, it's, it's not shabby. <laughs> we'll find out, shall we? We shall. Should we make her do a bit? Should we make her sing a bit? Yeah. Excellent. Um, I'm actually going to... Can I, can I borrow Ginny for this yes, as well? Um, You're going to make Ginny sing? <laughs> no one wants to hear that. I, I also need another volunteer. My name is Igor I'm from Hungary. When I sing, I'm going to show you where to put your hands so you can feel how I breathe. And I'm going to ask you after I sing if you can tell what's happening as I go up higher in pitch. Is that okay? Yeah. I'm going to take... Igor's hands, and where I'm placing his hand is about where my belly button is. But what this corresponds to for muscles inside is the transverse abdominus, and that's the most important abdominal muscle for an opera singer. It's a bit like a girdle. It's an internal girdle, and it's three layers deep, so it's not one of those superficial muscles that gives you fantastic six-packs, but it actually is a very important muscle, and it relates to the ones that when you get older will stop you needing diapers. So (laughs) it's an important muscle to work, and opera singers need it because we have to keep our abdominal cavity expanded. So even though I breathe into my lungs, and I don't have lungs in my stomach or in my back, what I aim to do muscularly is expand the entire thoracic cavity so I can get as much volume of air as possible. So I'm going to sing a little bit of a piece called Porgi Amor from the Marriage of Figaro, uh, Mozart, as was requested by the audience. So I'm going to take a breath in.
So what did it feel like when she was singing those high notes? Well, her stomach was out when she was breathing and when she did the high, when when the higher notes got longer and longer, her stomach went in. Is that what you'd expect him to yeah, feel? Yeah, it'll go out first and then it'll start to come in. So actually with high notes, we need less air pressure. So we actually want less air to escape. And so when I go for a high note, I actually... It's a misnomer to say I'm pressing out on the transverse abdominis, but I'm letting it relax out so that I can maintain a maximum amount of space. And then as I start to go down, he's exactly right. You can feel the stomach going in because I need more air for the lower notes, and I'm also going to need to take a breath in for the next phrase, so I need to get rid of all that air before I inhale again. Does anyone have any questions about what it takes to be an opera singer? One down here from Georgia. Is it true that you sound better in the shower? (laughs) Um, You mean her personally? (laughs) I sound fabulous in the shower. Well, the thing is, most showers are usually in a tile room, and it's the voice hitting against the tile sound that's coming back at you, so it makes it more vibrant. Room acoustic makes a big difference. Because of the way I sing and the style I sing, listening to me in a small room can actually be quite awkward and painful. But if I'm in a large room, my voice carries because I'm trained to use as much acoustic resonance of my body as I can. So the shower will be a nice, ringy, resonant space so that's why you'll think you'll sound better because it'll be quite bright and and brassy nicole do you sing in the shower i do warm up in the shower because the humidity is actually fantastic for uh, vocal cords so sing in the shower very healthy very good for you steve on twitter wants to know whether it's really true that opera singers can break wine glasses with their voice Ever, ever cracked a tile or broken the window? No, but I, I once in a talk uh, tried to break a wine glass for an audience. So um, if you hit a glass with a tuning fork or with even with anything to get a, a sound off of it, you can get the pitch and the resonant frequency of that glass. So whether it's a wine glass or it's a window, once you know the resonant frequency and you know the pitch or the note, if you will, in music terminology that that uh, object is ringing at, you as the singer have to match that pitch exactly and also match the resonant frequency and that's the oscillation and the speed at which the sound travels so your voice has to meet the object and it has to be exactly the same resonant frequency as the object but then you've got to hold it at a particular decibel for a really long time so the thinner the glass the smaller the object the easier it is to break the larger the glass or the thicker the more difficult or next to impossible and that's when you just step on it what's the largest glass structure you can break with um your voice Well, it depends on the voice and it depends on the glass structure. So, yes. So a greenhouse would be really hard to break? A greenhouse would be, I mean, maybe if you got an entire company of opera singers together all going at the same note at the same time at a particular window, you might be able to do it, but that's a tough task. I have spent quite a lot of my life attempting to smash wine glasses using sound, but with a signal generator. But the slightly expensive thing about this is that the really, really good quality wine glasses work a lot better. Yes, the the cheap IKEA ones don't. And it also helps if the glass has a flaw in it. The the real trick is you want a glass which will ring for a really long time when you ping it, and those are expensive, which is unfortunate because you want to smash them. (laughs) Hi, I'm Ailish from Cambridge. I was just wondering, when you're practising opera singing, do you use uh, software or IT technology to help improve your voice? 
the only thing I use is is recording. Uh, so I do record myself when I have lessons, but I, I don't necessarily use it to, to listen back. I'll quite often have my teacher reiterate what I was doing physically when I made that sound that they went, yes, that's the right sound. What were you doing during that? So because we're we're trained to not listen in a way, in a, in a strange way, no, I haven't, I haven't experienced any technology for any practice, no. Stephen on Facebook says, is it possible for a human to make a sound that other humans or themselves couldn't hear because it's out of their frequency range? So could you sing so high that we couldn't hear it, Nicole? I personally can't, although I have sent the neighborhood dogs barking a couple times. There is something that uh, females can do, and quite possibly some men, that's called accessing a flute register. But what you're doing with that is you're not actually on the vocal cords. You're not actually using a vibration of the vocal cords. So it's a little bit of fake singing, as it were. And that can go much, much higher than a human voice can. But you'd have to have extremely long and extremely thin vocal cords to make sounds that, that people couldn't hear. I guess down at the low end, you can make sounds which are lower than you can hear. I mean, just if you wave your hand back, backwards and forwards, you'll make a vibration through the air, which is far too low for you to hear. And so, yes. Nicole Francis Gaultier, thank you very much. Thank you. And please join me also uh, in thanking Rob Toulson, Richard Turner, Nigel Peake, and also, of course, Ginny and Dave for some fantastic sound-related experiments. And for doing the sound, Greer Jackson, Tim Revel and Sarah Shoston, thank you very much. And of course to you for listening, we couldn't do it without you. Now the Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, it's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name is Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>